You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. Hello and welcome to the 1940th edition of St. Edmundsbury News Talk for the 3rd of August 2023. The editor of this edition is Sue Aitchison, the producer is Pat Needham and your readers are David Palmer and Sue Harrington-Spear. We should also mention our processing team who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. We commence with the headlines. David. Calls for nuclear power funding charity welcomed. Bulky mill set for refusal as it would harm the landscape. Sadness is popular sweet shop to shut after two decades. Shopkeepers call for cash payment as card costs bite. Campaigners fighting sizeable sea are welcoming calls for government clarity on how it intends to finance plans to scale up nuclear capacity. Parliamentarians on the Science, Innovation and Technology Committee said questions remain for ministers' ambitious nuclear goals, with doubts over whether the government has a specific strategy to meet the target of bolstering the UK's nuclear capacity to 24 gigawatts GW of electricity by 2050. The new 118-page report, published on Monday, backs the government's decision to look to nuclear power as a way to meet the UK's electricity needs amid the race to net zero. It warns that the government's own most recent energy security plan, published in March, offers little clue about how measures will be implemented. Current plans, MPs warn, do not amount to the comprehensive, detailed and specific strategy that we believe is required if the government's aspirations are are to be delivered. Uh, Greg Clark, chair of the Science, Innovation and Technology Committee, said the government is right to identify nuclear power as an important (coughs) contributor to meeting our future electricity needs. It has stretching ambitions to achieve 24 GW of nuclear power by 2050. This would be almost double the highest level of nuclear generation that the UK has ever attained. The only way to achieve this is to translate these very high-level aspirations into a comprehensive, concrete and detailed nuclear strategic plan which is developed jointly with the nuclear industry, which enjoys long-term cross-party political commitment and which therefore offers dependability for private and public investment decisions. Elsewhere, the report also questions the exact purpose of Great British Nuclear, GBN, an arm's-length body currently involved in the government-backed competition to develop smaller-scale nuclear technology projects. MPs said there is still ambiguity over what GBN's exact remit will be in the future beyond running an SMR, Small Modular Reactor, competition. We recommend that the government should set out a more comprehensive statement of GBN's remit, operational model and budget, and its intended role with respect to ministers and government departments. Campaigners against the Sizewall Sea nuclear power plant project in Suffolk welcomed the committee's call for government clarity on the financing of gigawatt-scale nuclear projects. A spokesperson for the Stop Sizewall Sea campaign said, We're appalled that the committee has ignored legitimate concerns about whether nuclear can deliver reliable, affordable electricity. 
The group said it supported the committee calling for the government to publish Sizewell's C's cost and value for money, as doing so will expose just how unjustifiable this slow, risky, expensive project really is. Plans for a massive animal feed mill on the outskirts of Bury St Edmunds could be refused due to concerns the obtrusive development would significantly harm the landscape. AB Agri Limited and British Sugar PLC want to build the facility on land off Compiègne Way with a 50.2 metre high main wall and a 33 metre smaller mill. The proposals are due to be considered by West Suffolk Council's Development Control Committee and are recommended for refusal. A report said such a tall, bulky and obtrusive development will cause significant and permanent harm to the landscape and will harm the existing townscape of Bury St Edmunds and its immediate countryside setting to the north-east. The scheme is designed to replace the applicant's existing mill in Eastern Way, which employs 60 people who would transfer to the new site. The company said the move would create a further 70 jobs. The application for full planning permission said that the high-quality architectural facility would blend into the surrounding landscape. However, Bury St Edmunds Town Council has recommended refusal due to highway safety concerns. Three letters of objection <coughs> excuse me, from residents in Fornham Road and Hollow Road said it would add to an already over-industrialised part of Bury and there would be increased traffic. Dino Cariacopolis, Managing Director at AB Agri, UK Mono said the plan built on its business in the area would provide more employment opportunities as well as support the region's farm businesses with affordable feed made locally. He said the firm looked forward to presenting the plans next week. A Berries and Edmunds sweet shop, which has been a favourite amongst shoppers for nearly 20 years, has closed. Auntie Pam's sweet shop in the Travers issued a notice to customers on Tuesday morning that it will close with its last day of trading on Saturday 29th July. It said, We write this notice with a heavy heart, but also with deep appreciation of your unwavering support and loyalty throughout the years. Since 2004, we've had the privilege of servicing our community and building a strong relationship with our customers. Your patronage has been instrumental in our success, and we are sincerely grateful for this. It said due to challenges faced following the COVID-19 pandemic, rising costs and the current cost of living crisis, they had made the difficult decision to close. The decision was not taken lightly, and we understand the impact it may have on you, our valued customers. The last day of business will be on July 29th. The notice added, we understand you may have unused loyalty card. Unfortunately, these cannot re be redeemed during this time. If you do have remaining gift vouchers, these will be honoured. As we bid farewell, we want to express our deepest appreciation for your loyalty and support over the years. It has been an honour to serve you, and we will cherish the memories and relationships we have built. Thank you once again for being part of our story. We wish you all the best and hope our paths cross again. Jamie Coxedge took on the business in 2019, it was previously run by Sheila Barnard, who retired after 11 years behind the sweet counter. Oh, very sad. Mm. Independent traders in Bury St Edmunds are encouraging customers to pay in cash after charges for card payment machines hit their bottom lines. Denny Bross in St Andrew Street South 
Clear to See and Edith of Ely Butchers in St John Street are three of the businesses to encourage crack cash. Denny Bross now has an appeal notice to customers in its front window and Clear to See has introduced a minimum £5 spend on cards to help with the cost of card machines. Joy Denny, Managing Director of Denny Bross, said We placed the sign in the window and launched the appeal on social media because we had several people come in who thought we didn't take cash at all. I think it's a legacy of the Covid period when, as a non-essential business, we had no choice but to take card payments only when shops were allowed to trade. Many people also don't realise that using card payment machine does cost businesses money and we would prefer cash, especially at a time when all shop bills are mounting. Shopkeepers are charged for renting a card machine, then there are percentage costs for each transaction, depending on the card used. Some are charged up to 50 pence, even if a transaction is declined. Catherine Wynne of Clear to See has introduced a £5 minimum spend for card payments at a zero-waste food and product shop. The final straw was when a customer wanted to pay for something on card, costing 71 pence. It's just not worth it because of the costs, said Catherine. For card machines, minimum spends were common before the pandemic. I've spoken to a couple of shopkeepers who have always introduced them too. Aside from this, I don't think we should lose the use of cash in society and we would encourage people to use it. Tracy Edes of Edes of Ely Butchers in St John Street said, We always encourage cash as it stops the government and banks taking everyone for a ride. One trader who preferred not to be named said car payment machine costs could be astronomical and work out a lot higher for small businesses with higher percentage charges compared with the big stores which pay a few pence. Stuart Hansard, who runs Midgar Coffee in St John Street, which takes cash and cards, said cash will always be king. Now moving on to some general news. Work has started on the development of an £11 million net zero ambulance hub in Bury St Edmunds. Primary care property investor and developer Asura has moved on site to deliver the 2,900 square centimetre square metre, sorry, facility for the East of England Ambulance Service NHS Trust. Once completed, it will act as a make-ready central reporting hub with housing training facilities and space for 33 ambulances. The facility is designed to be fully net zero carbon in operation and will see the installation of smart technologies including over a thousand square meter of photovoltaic panels with the aim that all expected energy demand is met through the renewable energy generated on site. Construction of the hub is expected to take 14 months. Tom Abel, CEO of East of England Ambulance Service NHS Trust, said, I'm delighted to see work begin on the new hub at Bury St Edmunds, which will mean improved service for patients and modern, fit-for-purpose facilities for our teams. Concerns over drainage at a proposed health club on the outskirts of Bury St Edmunds have been addressed. David Lloyd Leisure Limited wants to build the huge facility on a 2.01 hectare site fronting Sandlands Drive at Marham Park, with plans submitted in February. The proposals have been subject to a number of amendments, with updates on drainage, ecological impacts and support from residents. Suffolk County Council, as lead flood authority, lodged a holding objection in March because of its insufficient information submitted. 
In April, the authority recommended refusal of a condition about drainage over missed opportunities to provide reuse of rainwater, treatment, amenity and biodiversity. Among actions required to overcome the refusal, it said rainwater harvesting should be further considered, a surface water drainage strategy submitted with consideration for tree pits, curbside, rain gardens and bio-retention features, as well as a site investigation. Did you understand any of that, David? I didn't. A letter to West Suffolk Council, dated July the 4th from Furnace Consulting Engineers, said rainwater harvesting was not favoured by a large majority of building owners it worked with due to ongoing maintenance issues. On surface water drainage, it said a number of sports pitches would be built with permeable surfaces and there were soft landscaping features around the car park and tree pits. In other submissions, Ecology Solutions was instructed by David Lloyd Leisure Limited to prepare a statement to consider the ecological effects. It said use of the site by light-sensitive bats was low, but steps had been taken to reduce light spill as much as practicable. Residents have also voiced their approval. One said, I support this proposal. It is consistent with the original master plan for Marham Park and the marketing of the development to the residents. This appears to be one of the few things left that will deliver on the original plan. It is also good to see sensible provision made for parking and the plan looks like it will enhance the area. Directors have warned that the trust which runs West Suffolk Hospital in Bury St Edmunds could face a total deficit of £17 million by March next year if no action is taken. In papers released ahead of its board meeting, the West Suffolk NHS Foundation Trust also highlighted that the total deficit for the financial year 2024 to 2025 could be as high as £30 million. Figures released by the Trust, which also runs Newmarket Hospital, show that by the end of June 2023, uh, the Trust was in deficit by £3.5 million. This was against a planned deficit of £1.4 million. Directors said the forecast deficit for March 2024 could be more optimistic if the Trust was able to improve delivery of its cost improvement plan and potentially secure an elective recovery fund. An elective recovery fund is money made available to hospitals to help recover levels of activity post the coronavirus pandemic. In the papers, the Trust said, in order to improve our financial position, we believe that the two most significant areas of focus should be on staffing costs especially temporary expenditure, and on delivering our cost improvement plan. Figures show that the Trust overspent by £500,000 on pay in June alone. The Trust said there were other significant causes for the deficit recorded at the end of last month, which included an unfunded escalation ward and industrial action. Last week, the Trust said a proposed new hospital facility in Bury St Edmunds should be completed by 2030. A planning application for the hospital build on the Hardwick Manor site was approved at the end of last year. Up to 210 more new homes could now be built in Thurston, following a decision by the planning inspector. Gladman Developments Limited lodged an appeal after Mid-Suffolk District Council failed to determine Gladman's sightline plans for up to 210 homes, access, play area and landscaping on land east of Ixworth Road within a prescribed period. 
On Wednesday, the planning inspectorate granted outline permission for the scheme, which was originally lodged with Mid-Suffolk District Council in April 2019. Describing the decision as finely balanced, Inspector Stephen Wilkinson said, I conclude the benefits of the appeal scheme would significantly and demonstrably outweigh the harm identified. A reserved matters application must now be submitted to West Suffolk within three years. A former pot washer who went on to enjoy a catering career and run his own construction firm is set to run the pub where it all began. Kevin Swales and his wife Rebecca are set to open the Bunbury Arms in Great Barton, which has been closed since January. The couple are due to welcome customers to the pub on August 14th and Mr Swales wants to bring back the carveries which made the venue popular. The 33-year-old, who grew up in Stanton, said, I want it to be the thriving carvery it used to be. With families, it always used to be busy, and then it kind of lost it over the years. I'm going back to a proper carvery again, home-cooked pub classics. The way the economy is at the moment, people want to go out for a nice home-cooked lunch and not pay the earth for it. Good quality food. That's what we're hoping to achieve. As a teenager, Mr Swales used to work at the Bunbury Arms when it was managed by Tom Wortley as a pot washer and he helped out in the kitchens. He went on to work in outside catering, front of house, waitering and as a bar manager for various companies and he also ran weddings. Three to four years ago, Mr Swales left the catering industry to start a construction business which will continue while he runs the Bunbury Arms. Mr Wortley's wife, Sam, is now business development manager at Green King and approached him about running the pub. Mr Swales was interested back in January but was busy with his construction firm and the Bunbury Arms was <coughs> nearly taken over by Leslie and Jim Callinan who run the Pickerel Inn in Exworth, but they pulled out. He said, you always end up loving what, uh, going back excuse me, to what you love doing. They now need to redecorate inside the pub and some building work has already been done. We're excited, he said. We're going to take the challenge and bring it back to how it used to be. A Green King spokesman said, We're absolutely delighted to have a new partner for the Bunbury Arms and can confirm the pub will reopen on August 14th. The pub is undergoing some refurbishments. However, the new partners are looking forward to welcoming the community back next month. A former Chief of Staff for Theresa May, who has been selected to fight for Matt Hancock's West Suffolk parliamentary seat, has said he hopes voters can draw a line under the past and back him at the next general election. Nick Timothy, a key advisor to the former Prime Minister, was confirmed as the Tory parliamentary candidate for the constituency. The Daily Telegraph columnist, who has family ties to the district, with his parents living in Hundon and family in Newmarket, said he plans to move to Suffolk with his wife in the future. He said of his appointment as candidate, I am really excited. It is a place I've known my whole life and care a lot about. I don't want to come in and have a checklist of things and just propose that what I know people want. I'm obviously in listening mode at this stage because I think it is a right that I introduce myself to the public here and have conversations across the constituency and listen. Mr Timothy was born in Birmingham and previously failed in a bid to be selected as a Conservative candidate for the Meriden constituency in Solihull. Mr Hancock, the former Health Secretary, currently represents the constituency as an independent after having the Tory whip removed last November, when he agreed to appear on ITV reality programme, I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here.
In 2019, then-Conservative Mr Hancock won the West Suffolk seat by a majority of more than 23,000 votes. Mr Timothy said he's looking forward to the campaign for the next general election and wants to work hard to gain voters' trust. I don't really believe in safe seats. There are plenty of constituencies that have been deemed to be safe over the years where maybe an MP took constituents for granted and found out it wasn't so safe after all, he said. A swimming teacher taught her last lesson on July the 21st after a career spanning five decades. Julie Bloomfield has spent her entire working life in the role, teaching at leisure centres in Bury St Edmunds. Both her daughters have taught swimming classes and her granddaughter was among those who joined her final class. Mrs Bloomfield began teaching in the 1970s, straight out of education. She said, when I left school, I went to work in a bank, but still carried on going up to the swimming pool after work. When the sports centre announced they were building an indoor pool, I was very keen to see if I could work there. I went to an interview. They were all military men, and then there was little old me. Mrs Bloomfield was also active outside of swimming, including as a trampolinist and a netball player. However, at age 21, she damaged her leg while rescuing someone from the pool, leading her to concentrate solely on her swimming career. Mrs Bloomfield became vice-chairwoman of the Bury St Edmunds Swimming Club. In her last years as a coach, she has been teaching at the pool at Sports Direct uh, Fitness Gym in Morton Hall. Mrs Bloomfield said... I think swimming is just a very important life skill. I'm very proud to have taught it. I can't remember how many children I've taught exactly, but it must be well over a thousand. Historic church bells are set to ring out again after villagers managed to secure a huge grant towards their reinstatement. St Margaret's Church in Westhorpe, near Stowmarket, has been without the sound of bells for a hundred years. But a £142,000 National Lottery Heritage Fund grant towards the £182,000 project will see plans to restore them over the line. It means that the village will once again hear the sound of bells pealing at the historically significant church, including a bell dating back to 1450, which would have been rung in Mary Tudor's time. Westhorpe Rector Reverend Philip Mary and the Bishop of Dunwich, the Right Reverend Dr Mike Harrison, will bless the bells at a service before they head to Taylor's Bell Foundry in Loughborough to be repaired. The ancient bell tower will also be restored. The village's Mary Tudor committee held a number of local events and decided to approach the National Lottery to help with the project. Other donors include Westhorpe Trust, £5,000, Gazzoni Trust, £5,000 and Suffolk Guild of Ringers, £5,000. As well as restoring the five historic bells and the tower at the 1,000-year-old church to full working order, the church will be adding a new commemorative bell to create a ring of six. Villagers are also looking forward to the return of the ancient art of bell ringing and hope the restoration works will enable the church to become an important place to meet. The aim is to bring its rich history to life through digitisation, a website and an audio tour and provide an educational resource for groups such as schools, local community organisations as well as attracting bell ringers from a wide area. The village has been home to a number of famous historical figures including Henry VIII's sister Mary Tudor who was briefly Queen of France, 1940s and 1950s film star Jean Kent and 1600s Baptist minister Dr John Clark 
who went to Rhode Island in America, where he championed religious freedom in the New World. The project will aim to highlight how Westhorpe society has developed and is shaped by the lives of its ancestors. Diarmuid McCulloch, Emeritus Professor of the History of the Church at the University of Oxford, said it was wonderful news that the heroic fundraising of Westhorpe's people and friends has been so generously recognised by the National Lottery Heritage Fund. Thanks to all this effort, the historic legacy of this remarkable place will be further safeguarded to delight future generations. The group is also working with Suffolk Wildlife Trust to preserve the biodiversity of the church and grounds and gain eco-church status. Now we're moving on to the letters and we've got a letter um, signed by three people. Martin Taylor, Berry Society Chairman, uh, Robin Burnett, Berry and Bloom Chairman and Chris Wiley, Berry and Bloom Coordinator. Apparently there was a letter which uh, had uh, complained about decisions they were making and this is a response. It's the opinion of the judges on the day. A letter bemoaning the lack of a certificate of merit for the letter writer's front garden was unfortunate. We can assure this person, name and address supplied, that the whole of Bury St Edmunds is judged by over a hundred volunteers. Only front gardens or properties with just hanging baskets and window boxes are looked at. It is important to understand that it is the opinion of the judging volunteer of the day as to whether a certificate of merit or a highly commended certificate is awarded using the points system as recommended by the Royal Horticultural Society. Obviously volunteers are only human and some gardens might not be deemed worthy, unsuccessful or just missed. And it must not be forgotten that this is not a competition. Nobody pays to enter. As you might expect, those receiving one of the many certificates close on 1,500 have been awarded are pleased. Should you feel you might like to help in the judging process of gardens, why don't you just volunteer as a judge next year? And now Barry Editors, who is actually editor of the Barry Free Press, has written a letter. Climate emergency, cost of living crisis, mortgage rate spikes, war in Ukraine. On the face of it, we have plenty going on in 2023, and that's not even mentioning the aftermath of the destructive COVID pandemic. There's no doubt we have all changed the way we live as a result of these factors. We're shopping more frugally, heating our homes with more regard to energy use and looking for a deal with everything. For retailers, that's a tough nut to crack. Their own bills have skyrocketed. Do they pass on increased costs to the customer and risk them going off to find good cheaper elsewhere? Or do they settle for lower returns and hope to ride out the storm? Barely a week goes by without another business being torn apart. This week we have seen Auntie Pam's sweet shop in Bury St Edmunds announce it will close tomorrow. Neil's Yard Remedies is also shutting. Last week it was super dry. I recall writing a piece several Christmases ago about shopping online. I laughed back then. No one will ever rely on the likes of Amazon, I thought. How wrong I was. Now the Prime Van, among others, is a very regular visitor to most streets, let alone the motorised bike sending hot food near and wide. It's a world we've demanded and built, but I do wonder what the high street will look like in a year's time. Now a letter from John Dell uh, from Shotley uh, about trade deal and sovereignty. I was amused by Mr Juby's letter, unlikely vote to rejoin EU, on July the 22nd. He does not appear to understand that decisions in the European Union, the EU, are made by agreement between nation states 
but can only be passed into law by each individual country. Each and every European law passes into law only if the individual parliaments agree to it. This was true for the United Kingdom and Northern Ireland, where every EU law went through the British Parliament and was passed into law by British MPs. In contrast, the Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership, the CPTPP, which our government has now signed us up to, has been described by its many critics as highly intrusive into national sovereignty and policy-making. The corporate rights of one country can be enforced in another. As a consequence, Kuala Lumpur can now set our laws about palm oil, Tokyo our rules on state aid, and Ottawa our rules on food standards. Can Mr Juby please explain how Brexit and the CPTPP has given us more sovereignty than, when, than that which we had in the EU. And now a, a letter from Mara Walsh, who writes via email, a sad lack of consideration. Not long ago, national pride was built upon our politeness and consideration to others. I learnt manners and politeness from my mother, and it was very much part of my childhood. One of the things I always remember being told was to walk in single file, if necessary, to allow others to pass in comfort on the pavement. It was something that, for me, has always been looked upon as an act of courtesy to others. Sadly, there was not any politeness on show in the Abbey Gardens on Monday, July the 17th, as I walked between the cathedral and along the footpath of the herb garden out to the main gardens. As others may know, it is a busy route between the gardens and the pilgrim's kitchen. At the bottom, four to six people stood engaged in conversation. As there was no other way to pass by, I stood still for some seconds in the hope they would move without being prompted by me. When they did slowly move slightly, I politely suggested that it was not a good place to stand. As I moved by, a voice called out rudely, using that popular stock phrase, Get a life! What is it with people nowadays that if you show any concern about inconsiderate behaviour, you suffer insults for it. Presumably, they felt my intrusion in their gathering was of little consequence because they were entitled to stand where they liked and when they liked. Please think about the impact of your actions on other people and acknowledge that life does not centre around your own world. There are all sorts of areas where such inconsiderate behaviour is upsetting to others. How many of us have gone to the cinema or theatre and had our evening ruined because some others think it's their right to noisily munch their way through bags of crisps or popcorn. The people blocking the footpath had no thought for other users. Appreciating and acknowledging the effect of your behaviour has become lost in the widespread belief in the individual and their right and freedom to do as they please. Consideration to other costs nothing, and it certainly does not des deserve derision and insulting thoughts from adults who should know better. In contrast, consideration shows carefulness not to be an inconvenience or act in a harmful manner to others' well-being and it shows careful thought. Please show kindness and respect in your lives. Now we have an email from Martin Bryant and he says that the council should pay up over the pothole. Regarding the story Driver's Pothole Press, very free press, July the 21st, I can understand the upset caused by the refusal of Suffolk County Council to compensate her for the repairs. Surely if the council was aware of the hazard, it should have a duty of care to either paint around the pothole or put a bollard to make it easier for drivers to identify the hazard. 
To say that it would be dangerous for its staff to walk in the road to spray doesn't make sense, as I'm sure I've seen markings made on busy roads in the past. Funny that the pothole was filled a few days after the initial claim. So how did the workmen manage to fill the hole, if it's that dangerous to go on the road? Of course, they used bollards, signs or even traffic lights, so what's the difference by using this for the spraying? I believe that the council should pay up, and if it persists in refusing to do so, then Beau White should consider suing them in the small claims court. It's all too easy for the SCC to say no. It has a responsibility to keep our roads safe. Now I have a letter from Joe Ellen Grizzip, Barry St Edmunds, who writes about the removal of art, artwork is censorship. It was deeply disturbing to read the article about the removal of banners and murals from the Ark created by the A-level students at Abbeygate Sixth Form, the Berry Free Press, July the 21st. Art isn't always about pretty and pleasing. It can and should be thought-provoking, stimulating, uncomfortable and a medium of expression that touches people. What is it that those who are complained of are afraid? And why would they give the Ark give in and, in fact, censor the efforts of these young artists? Maybe I see things differently, but I found nothing disturbing or upsetting in the banners and murals, clearly a creative collaboration presented with imagination and flair. We should be celebrating efforts like this and giving young artists more of a forum to show their work, not running scared when someone feels upset. Censorship like this is flat out wrong. A short letter from Heather M. Tanner of Earl Sam, uh, saying bankers have a duty of confidentiality. Uh, read the letter, apology should be to us, July the 28th. Whatever one's propensity towards Nigel Farage, all of us, great or small, should expect confidentiality from those with access to our most personal information. Whether it's a bank, medical practice or lawyers, I would expect said representatives to face certain dismissal if proved to have spilled my beans at a function. Now, Graham Kendall for Bury St Edmunds writes, The long grass is spoiling the heath. I write to complain about the lack of appropriate grass cutting on Hardwick Heath. At the present time, the height of the uncut area is as high as four foot in places. It used to be a real pleasure for members of the community to access the heath for a walk, meet with friends and family and enjoy a picnic. Sadly, due to some misguided policy from our local council, this is no longer a pleasure. Dog walkers find it impossible to keep sight of their animals with the grass in this state. I wrote a letter to the council some time ago over the situation, but as yet have had not I have not received a reply. As some more general news items, uh, a popular sunflower event has returned to an estate near Bury St Edmunds. The 3,000-acre Ruffham estate has opened its doors to allow visitors to enjoy a host of free activities at the height of the summer and bask as two hectares of sunflower bloom. The estate will be open from 9 o'clock in the morning to 5 o'clock every day. While there, visitors can pick sunflowers, buy wildflowers by the bunch, wander around specially created paths, enjoy a picnic or take photographs with their family. In addition, photography areas have been mapped out by the organisers. The Folk About Cafe will also be open, serving refreshments and food, and there will even be an ice cream van as well as food trucks. Parking and entrance are free, and picking sunflowers starts from two pounds. Dogs are welcome, provided they are well-behaved and on a lead. The event is expected to run until late August. 
The King's coronation was the theme as eight schools and community groups created a recycled art project. Judgment Day came on July the 18th as Berry and Bloom's latest display at Abbey Gardens caught the eye of judges from Anglia in Bloom. Youngsters attending workshops at the Crafty Foxes created compost crowns made using recycled household waste materials such as crisp packets, drink cans, plastic bottles and vinyl records. The project was sponsored by Denbury Homes. Chris Wiley, Berry and Bloom coordinator, said the judges didn't have a bad, bad word to say, just full of praise to all involved in Berry St Edmund's floral successes. A great day was had by all. We had two judges who were just amazed by what they saw. A community cinema trip organised by Berry St Edmund's resident proved to be a major success. Thomas Howard, aged 27, wanted to, some, wanted to do something nice for the community and so organised and paid for a group trip to the town Cineworld to watch Disney's Elemental last week. He wanted the screening to be inclusive of everyone, particularly those with sensory needs or disabilities. He said it went far beyond expectations. Everyone had a good time. There was loads of compliments afterwards. It went really, really, really well. We had just over 60 people. The cinema offered additional seats free of charge and light refreshments. Tom hopes to do, do more group cinema trips and is looking to set up a film club. He will also continue his other acts of kindness, which include making Halloween goodie bags. A new cafe group is set to launch in Bury St Edmunds in September, following success of their sessions in Portman Road. Ipswich Town Foundation is launching a new Golden Days Cafe in the West Suffolk Town. The cafe is designed to provide a safe space to support those living with dementia, their carers and those who have lost loved ones to dementia. These sessions, who have run since June 2022 at Portman Road, the home of Ipswich Town, and have proven to be a successful and popular addition to the Foundation's offerings. Leanne Smith, the Foundation's Health and Wellbeing Manager, said, After building a thriving community at our cafe in Ipswich, we are delighted to finally be able to expand our support for people living or affected by dementia to the people living in and around Bury St Edmunds. We are looking forward to meeting new members of the community and working alongside them to provide support for their carers and those affected. The new sessions will be hosted at Berrytown Football Club from 10.30am to 12.30pm on the third Wednesday of every month, starting with September the 20th. The Villagers Church on the Ickworth Estate had a double surprise this week, with MP Joe Churchill visiting, as well as a donation for the site's upkeep. Barry St Edmund's MP was shown around the church and met Lord Frederick, the Marquess of Bristol. The Abbot Baldwin, Masonic Lodge from Barry St Edmund's, then presented the church and the Alzheimer's Society with cheques of £1,450 each. John Porter, the lodge's worshipful master, said, Ickworth Church was also an easy choice, as since its reopening on June 29, 2013, I have been responsible for raising funds to help keep the church stable. It gave me great pleasure to present a similar cheque to the Marquess of Bristol. The Berry Drop-In recently hosted the High Sheriff of Suffolk, who visited to learn about the charity's work with local homeless and vulnerable people. Volunteers with a drop-in based out of Trinity Methodist Church in Berry St Edmunds met Mark Pendington on Friday. The High Sheriff presented the team with a certificate in recognition of its work. Mr Pendleton said, It's a real privilege to visit so many organisations across Suffolk. 
Lots of people do amazing work. Remarkable things are happening and the volunteers, the sponsors and the supporters all work really hard in a really good professional way. Sometimes you're so close to doing these terrific things you need someone like a high sheriff to come along and say what you're doing is amazing and thank you so much. Now we've got a sport item. Well, in fact, we've got three items. One about football, one about rugby and one about cricket. Uh, the football first. Uh, Blues suffer friendly losses. Berrytown's pre-season has continued with back-to-back defeats against higher league opposition. The Blues suffered a 1-0 loss at Leyston, who were a step three outfit. And that was followed by a 4-0 defeat at home to National League Northside Kingslin Town. The Blues will run out for their final friendly of the summer when they play host to Colchester United under-23s. And the season proper then starts on August 5th against Biggleswade Town in the Emirates FA Cup. Moving on to rugby, there'll be a fresh look to the Berries and Edmonds squad that competes in National League 2 East next season. It's been a busy summer for the club's head coach and director of rugby, Jacob Ford, who revealed in April that six members of his 2022-23 side would be moving on to pastures new and he's responded by adding a total of 14 new players, all of whom are now bedding themselves in ahead of the season's opener at home against Old Albanians on September the 2nd. Ford said, We lost six players, and so we knew that they would need replacing, but we were also keen to add some extra depth to the squad as well. The first thing I would say is that recruitment at this level is difficult. I've probably had 80 conversations since Christmas, and we've managed to land 14 of those. And finishing off with a bit of cricket, at the recent NCCA showcase match at Woolpit Cricket Club, Surrey defeated Suffolk by 101 runs. Suffolk did themselves proud with the way they bowled and fielded. However, the golfing class was all too apparent when Suffolk went out to bat, ending on 45 for 6 after 18 overs. Now, listen up folks, some dates for your diary. Barry St Edmunds has got a food and drink festival to be held in the town centre on the 27th and 28th of August from 10am until 5pm. Free entry and live food and drink demos on the Stoves Cookery Theatre, Farmer's Market on the Angel Hill and a variety of food and drink stalls. All free. Well, I think it's all free. Mind you, if you buy anything from the Farmer's Market, you'll probably have to pay for it. There's also activities for kids to enjoy. Lots of sand, beach and fairground rides for all ages, street entertainment and big games as well to play. So go out there and have fun on the 27th and 28th of August. Over to you, David. OK, um, uh, the days of horsepower. We're looking back with Martin Taylor. Before the coming of the railway to Bury St Edmunds in 1846, the town was reliant, as was everywhere else, on the horse. Many of the hotels had stables where horse team changes could be made to the stagecoaches that plied their passengers to London. The Angel Hotel, a case in point, had stabling for around 40 horses in its stable in Angel Lane. These stagecoaches had exotic names, such as the Phenomena, Phenomena, the Times, Hope, yeah, why not, and the Hope and Regulator. Carriers, too, were an important mode of transport. The lorries of their day, they carried goods from town to town. The inns in Bury were the departure points. The White Lion, the Fox, the Castle, the One Bull and the Griffin, where loads would set off. 
the Griffin having up to ten wagons on market days leaving to go to the surrounding villages. However, that all changed with the advent of the motor vehicle, of course. Faster and cheaper to run, they far outshone the horses and industries that kept the horses going then fell by the wayside. Harness makers, farriers, wheelwrights, blacksmiths and saddlers all closed, as did the stables. Mind you, it was not James Pettit's fault when his stables on the corner of King's Road with St Andrew's Street South nearly went out of business. They were struck by a Zeppelin bomb in 1915. Pettit was a forward thinker, combining his stables with being a motor engineer. It didn't take long for the upper crust of society to exchange their horse-drawn buggies, with more exotic names such as Phaeton, Landau and Brougham, for a chauffeur-driven limousine. Handsome cabs gave way to motorised taxis, and by the latter part of the 20th century, the horse-drawn carts and wagons slowly disappeared. Tradesmen such as Childs, Bakers in Guildhall Street, Booties with its last horn, horse-drawn milk float, and Les Freeman, the rag-and-bone man, the last of their kind. Sadly, Green King had its last four dray horses put down in 1958. Now... Another feature, Students' Adventure 50 years ago laid foundations for popular attraction. Reporter Martina Weicher looks back at how a group of students, Dreams of Change, created a popular Anglo-Saxon attraction. Nowadays, it would be completely impossible for nine young people to be let loose with sharp tools working at heights on a council-owned site. Ian Alistair laughed. But that's exactly what happened five decades ago. In the summer of 1973, with zero experience and an ambitious idea at hand, a group of young students arrived at a small Suffolk village, just a few, few miles north of Bury St Edmunds, to bring their concept to life, to reconstruct an Anglo-Saxon pit house. Most of us were not doing it for archaeological reasons, we were doing it because it was interesting and fun, Ian remembered. I think the main thing we wanted and took from it was the future educational value of having something there that people could look at and ask questions. Now known as the Westlow Anglo-Saxon Village and Country Park, the site, back in 1973, was nothing but acres of wasteland. As the students settled in Westlow for what would be a few months of hard work, Ian said the group never expected the legacy their work would leave, which now attracts legions of visitors to the site. It was definitely our hope, said Ian. I'm just extremely pleased that it was developed into something viable and ongoing that keeps spreading its wings further and further. We came about it in a curious way. There were four of us who were undergraduates in Cambridge studying on the Anglo-Saxon, Norse and Celtic course, said Ian. In February of 1973, there was a week of protests here because the undergraduates were dissatisfied with all sorts of things and the thing we chose to try and change was to have a meeting place. So we suggested building an Anglo-Saxon hut in Cambridge to hold our meetings in. When we went to find out from an expert how to build such a thing, he said, why not build one in Westow? Because I had just excavated the site there and the council are willing to support the project, said Ian. With that, the idea became reality. And while preparing for their final university exams, the group of four devoted their free time to gather research and ideas. From February to June, we were working on our degree. But in our spare time, we were travelling to various places to look at other archaeological experiments to see what we can learn. 
from brainstorming one winter in hopes of improving their educational facilities to stepping foot on what was once a vibrant village occupied by the Anglo-Saxons, the group experienced a swift turnaround. We got quite a lot of money very quickly from Anglia Television and the council said they would match that amount. After advertising the project on the streets of Cambridge, the group of four became a group of nine and after securing £2,000 worth of funding, the group was ready to commence the project six months later. David, over to you. Thank you. Well, June the 25th was the first day for this operation and uh, 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 Ian is saying the main thing was to buy basic necessities such as mattresses, furnitures, uh, lamps and cooking materials. It was rather like going on a camping holiday. We needed typewriters and paper, we needed a desk and chairs, and we needed to file and record things. For the next few months, the group's permanent residence would be what Ian recalled, based in a primitive cottage located just opposite the site. We were living in a brick-built cottage with no running water, electricity or telephone. There was not even a bathroom or a toilet, remembered Ian. However, that didn't deter the group from embarking on their archaeological adventure, and soon the first wooden posts were erected. The team immersed themselves in the Anglo-Saxon experience by using tools and materials that would have been available 1,600 years ago, which Ian described as exciting. We would shape the wood down using tools the Anglo-Saxons would have used, and once it was in the right shape, we erected it in the in the post holes. Then we would put the cross beams and the rafters. Lastly, we put the walls in. So we build piece by piece, as you would with any sort of medieval house, one piece of wood on top of the other. When asked about anything memorable, Ian disclosed about his delightful experience with a cow carcass. The other really enjoyable thing was buying a whole cow carcass, soaking it in the river, which we would never have been allowed to do now for environmental reasons, and cutting it into strips. Then we would tie the strips around the joints. So if you look at the original houses, you can still see the dried up bits of skin we put up there 50 years ago, recalled Ian. Well, by August 1973, the first hut was realised, and by Easter the following year, the second and last hut was built. We decided we would return to the site the following Easter. Those of us who graduated, including me, were away doing jobs, so it was quite difficult. We would come at the weekends. As the second hut went up in what Ian recalled as a much quicker process, the group's adventure in Westow was drawing to an end. Now, with some members looking to graduate and others already settled in real jobs, the nine young adults were preparing for another adventure, the world of work. I'm really grateful to the Westow project. I think we all were, said Ian. I don't regret any time spent on it now. It gave me confidence that I could organise something. I've actually run two businesses and I've been self-employed all my life. I went back into Cambridge that winter and I got a job in a bookshop and then I started a book business which went on for 30 years. But of course that didn't end the hut building project in Westow. The site continued to thrive and more huts were reconstructed in the following years by the council. Today the original oldest house still stands alongside seven other reconstructed buildings including a farmer's house, a craft building, a hall, a workshop and a weaving house. And now Peter Good is, um, has written an article about walking the road less travel and he's the energy advisor and environmental researcher. Like many at this time of the year I'm really looking forward to a few days away to recharge. 
I don't do lying on the beach, but I do enjoy messing about on the coast for a change of scenery. So I will be donning knotted handkerchief on head and trousers rolled up to just below the knees to paddle in the freezing Atlantic waves of the southwest of England. A quiet hill, coastal or riverside walk will also do me nicely, and I will try to do a bit of research before I go. Visiting a place as a tourist without checking out the locale can mean that you end up following the obvious routes and doing the well-promoted activities. Bucket list places can sometimes be a trial by queuing and a bit of a disappointment. Yet even visiting these places can take their toll if you are not considerate of the local people and the surroundings. Think back to the scenes post-Covid when the most popular visitor destinations overflowed with rubbish and became a parking nightmare. As my small contribution to more responsible holidays, I've tracked down a few tips to travelling lighter. I've tried some but not all the ideas over the years and will follow through on one or two this time around. Research the area and timings of activities before you go to avoid the obvious tourist traps when busy. You may also find hidden gems and if you do want to see the highlights, try visiting off-peak for a better experience. If you're on a package, ask the tour operator about what they do to improve conditions for the local people and the areas they visit. Are they a fair local employer and do they contribute to the upkeep or protection of the destinations that they promote? Lugging around everything can be both tiring and more expensive. Before you travel, think about what you need to take and what you may be able to pick up at your destination. Put your cleaning and washing products into smaller containers for ease of use and to reduce weight and space. How you travel can have a big impact. If you can't avoid the car or plane to and from your holiday destination, try using the local services when you are there. They may take a bit longer, but you can enjoy the scenery on the way. Also, you will not have to sit in the car park tailback. Don't be a trashy tourist. Avoid single-use plastic bottles and disposable cups. Many cafes and shops will replenish your drinking containers at a discount. Put your rubbish in the bins or, better still, reuse packaging and dispose of any rubbish responsibly. Cut down your water use, whether at the hotel when self-catering or on the go. Using fewer towels and bedding or being sensible about clothes washing when self-catering will make a difference, particularly at places that are already water-stressed. Use the local shops rather than the national chains. The money is more likely to stay in the area, while the choice may be wider and less well-travelled compared to the typical chains with national distribution networks. Also, the food and drink may reflect what is locally produced. Use local knowledge to learn more about your destination. City or country-guided tours may be worth the money. You will learn first-hand and it takes the pressure off. Ask for recommendations at the local tourist information office and in local shops about what to see and where to eat. Don't dress like a tourist in places where it either makes you more of a magnet for pickpockets or could disrespect local customs or faiths. Finally, have a great time and bring back memories, not mass-produce mementos. Well, we're coming to the end of this edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk. If you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number on the pink sheet which you've been given. Alternatively, uh, you can put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We'd like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Berry Free Press, East Anglian Daily Times, Haverhill Echo and Newmarket Journal 
from whose pages most of our items have been taken. And News Talk will be back again next week. So until then, from... Sue, goodbye. And Pat, David, that's me, and Sue, it's goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye. listening to a podcast brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St. Edmunds studio.